You're listening to The Over 50 Entrepreneur, the podcast that's dedicated to the business builders who are only getting started when most are winding down. This is the place to discover how to create more freedom from your business while growing the value of your business. Now here's your host, Rick Hadrava. Hi, everybody. This is Rick Hadrava with another episode of the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listen, in the studio today, actually not in the studio, but on the line today, I have Bruce Sanchez, who is a brewmaster and owner of Twisted Spike Brewery. And I actually met Bruce um, a couple years ago when he was getting the Twisted Spike Brewery up and running. Mutual friend of ours, who is unfortunately no longer with us, wanted to have a meeting with me at Bruce's establishment. And I love to have good beer. And I think Bruce has a great lineup. And and I can't tell you, I know every one of them, but uh, whether it's Holy Beer or Rose Rock, Irish Red, even Black Snake, I've really had some interesting brews from Twisted Spike. And um, so I'm excited to have Bruce on today. And, you know, Bruce started brewing back in 1992 when I think he's, he likes to comment, beer was pretty yellow and fuzzy, and we had about a 3.2 content, at, and, and beer was average at best. But from brewing in the kitchen, on the stove, to winning awards for his wonderful beers, Bruce has turned his passion for craft beer into a thriving business. Today, not only will you find Twisted Spike beers at the brewery, but you'll find them in a variety of your local grocer and liquor stores. In 2014, Bruce was a technical contributor to the University of Oklahoma's creation of the Chemistry of Beer course. They didn't have that course when I was in college, but I think you're going to get a lot from Bruce today. So, Without further ado, let's welcome Bruce Sanchez to the studios. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you very much, Rick. Well, Bruce, Good to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it. Listen, we talked about this, and so I'm just going to kick this off. You, you've been doing homebrew since 1992, but the reality is this is a second career for you, and that's what I love as much as your beer. You were actually an engineer with the FF with the FAA. Tell us a little bit about how you started with the FAA and why and and why after 30 years you decided to go a different direction. Sure. Well, uh, growing up, I was always very introverted and I liked science and math and I was terrified with any public speaking or large group settings. Um, So my life choice as a teenager was I'm going to be an engineer where I can delve into and fix problems and take things apart and put them back together. And I'm going to go off and not have to worry about going into places that are outside my box. (laughs) It was going outside the box was not in my, in my plan. So from that perspective, engineering fit my personality at the time. Uh, we, you know, I right out of college, I started at Tinker Air Force Base for six years and then transferred to the FAA. And I've been doing power systems for the last 
um, 31 years. Um, I learned early on, even at Tinker Air Force Base, with the projects that I was working on or I wanted to work on, there was a business case that had to be made for some of those projects for improvement or my thoughts on um, doing things a little bit differently. I constantly had to pitch my ideas. So lo and behold, the engineer had to be a salesman too. Dadgummit. So after uh, doing that at, at Tinker and getting you know, a little bit taste of you know the real world on, on if you want something done, you have to be able to articulate it and get other people on board. And then you can really achieve whatever goals that you set at that time. So that's the beginning of my engineering career. And then that transferred to the, the FAA and uh, same things happen. So you've, you're dealing with uh, large complex systems. You see places that uh, you can put your stamp on it, become an expert, improve things, you really enjoy your time and what you're doing and using the skills and the, uh, and the experience that you have to make things better. You know, everybody wants to, or I think, you know, it's for me, I like to try to make things better, whether it's if I'm borrowing a tool from a friend, my, my stepdad early on said, if you borrow anything from anybody, you return it in better condition that you borrowed it from. So I kind of had that philosophy all my life, make things okay. better. So, so Bruce, you, whether you were comfortable or not, um, in the beginning, you had to grow to to get uncomfortable, um, and and that kind of brought in y- your first exposure to, we'll say, the sales world. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So selling ideas and and bringing things, bringing things to the table, giving the value proposition of why this is going to make things better. Did you did you enjoy that time? Obviously, thirty years. You had to have some some part of that that you enjoy doing. Oh, absolutely. Um, the technical aspects of it and, and training technicians to uh, maintain all the equipment, it's, it's really satisfying You know, when you can provide, give information or provide something of your experience and relate the value of that to somebody else and have them go and have a nice little light bulb. Oh, aha, uh-huh, I get it now. It's, there's some, there's a lot of good teaching aspects. There's a lot of sh- good sharing aspects, um, and that's you know pretty fulfilling for for me anyway. Sure. Well, so then in 1992, what was what was the um, impetus of you getting into the home brewing practice in the first place? Mm-hmm. I've always been a beer guy. Um, even before the homebrewing aspect, I mean, I was the, the 18 year old kid in college that was walking around with a Bex dark in 1983. I just love beer. <laughs> um, I don't think a whole lot of other people <laughs> in 1982, um, in college were, you know, I would rather have, I would rather spend my money on a six pack of Bex dark than a 24 pack of Natty light. Yes. So it wasn't about um, the alcohol content. It was about enjoying the beer. I've always enjoyed beer. Um, And then being landlocked in Oklahoma, uh, where all of our beer laws have been tied to the 
laws in our state constitution, um, you know, prohibition laws are have been in effect until just very recently. So right. I commonly refer to Oklahoma as the beer desert. And when I was able to travel uh, doing my job with the FAA all over the country, which was a, probably I was on anywhere between 25 and 35 percent travel most of the time. Um, I was able to have access to all of this great beer and this big renaissance of craft beer all over the country. So I've been participating in this all over the country for the last 25 years. And then wah, wah, I'd have to come home. And then <laughs> over the years, all the restrictions for um, bringing liquids on airplanes even further restricted my what I could bring back from my trips. I mean, I had I had special Pelican cases for uh, different sizes of beer bottles that I would travel with because I knew I was going to bring some beer home. And even before they were charging, I could, you can take two bags on a plane and not get charged for it. One bag was my clothes and one bag was my Pelican case for my beer returns. Wow. Yeah, we was, can't do that. It was couldn't, couldn't do that after 9-11. No, more, no. Nope. I mean, I had spots for 12, 12 ounce bottles, 22 ounce bottles and 750 mil bottles in this one case. So, and I could bring, and I had it maxed out. If it was full, it would still be under 50 pounds. So, <laughs> so, so then you started tinkering at home, trying to make your own, your own brew. A, a friend of mine, we were at their house, just doing a, having a casual the friend visit and he said, here, try that. You like beer here. Try this. I made this at, at, in a, from a kit that somebody gave me. And I was like, sure. And I tasted it and it was like nothing that was available in Oklahoma at the time. Uh, I believe it, it might've been a, a Belgian blonde um, style beer. And I was floored that he was able to, you know, this is a, a CPA friend of mine, you know, non-technical, really non, non-beer geek, um, was able to produce a very, very drinkable beer uh, from, his, you know, from his kitchen stove. And I was right. like, no, no way. Show me. <laughs> so he did. We did a batch together. Um, and then I got my um, book of the joy of homebrewing that was written by Charlie Papazian in the seventies. Um, not otherwise known as the godfather of craft beer. I think I had my original book was probably a second or third edition and it was organized perfectly from, it had three different sections, beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And I tore through the beginning, um, beer manufacturing section in two or three different batches, moved on to intermediate, did a few of those. And after a while, then I, you know, the advanced home brewing is, you know, basically brewing from scratch with um, malted grain and going, you know, building. It was super fun for me to build my own home brewing system. Uh, so I used all of my uh, engineering planning and drawing skills and tried to do it on at that time I had a very young family so my beer budget was very small and I would reuse parts find cheap materials modify materials make it work for me make it work for how I wanted to you know spend my brew day 
because it's you know when you start doing that it's a it's a it's a six hour operation so i you know equate it to somebody who wants to go play golf on saturday for four to five to six hours um i would spend my time in my garage for four to five to six hours making beer so that how the hobby generated um a lot of satisfaction and i was able to you know share a ton of beer with people in the neighborhood and my friends um then my beer friends and got you know broader and broader and i was you know since we are guys and we like to compete oh guess what you can send your homebrew beers to competitions and pit your beer in the same category as somebody else's and see how your brewing processes and methods and uh, attention to detail reflect your you know brewing style or other brewing styles and you get medals and recognition and you feel good about hey i i this is something that i can do and i'm good at it and i enjoy it and i enjoy the the fruits of it and i like to share it and it was just super fun and super easy for me because i just you know the one thing you learn in engineering school is you learn how to learn that's the biggest thing if you don't know something and something goes wrong you have to you know you're almost genetically tooled to figure out why. Um, so I made a couple huge brewing errors on some carbonation, and my wife called me one morning at the office and said, uh, "Honey, your beer's exploding. Get home right now." Yeah. So I this was in the you know, kitchen. Oh well, it was. All I had. Uh, I was using the even the those giant green brolsch um ceramic flip top bottles heavy yes. duty bottles um i was doing bottle conditioned a bottle conditioned lager at that time and it was the first lager that i had done um and so when i did that i really didn't want to waste a whole bunch of materials so i cut back on the recipe but then i forgot to cut back on the priming sugar for the carbonation so i had twice as much carbonation sugar in there as i should have and the bottles couldn't handle it and they started, they were in the cabinet in our um, secondary, in a, well, our laundry room, bathroom, where I had a lot of storage. So I had two or three cases of Grolsch bottles on the shelf behind cabinet doors that were going off like shotguns. Oh, no. <laughs> but, so, so, so to say that everything was a success out of the gate would be maybe exaggerating a little bit. Oh, huge, huge exaggeration. Um, at the five-gallon level you're willing to experiment uh you're willing to try some of the stuff that you know you know, may or may not work um you're you're trying you know i would usually try to stay within a style or um and then either put a little twist on it or do something a little slightly different um and you learn how to you know what shortcuts you can make and what shortcuts are devastating to your beer and then you throw away five gallons of beer because oops yeah shouldn't have done that won't do that next time. <laughs> might might have might spend a little more time cleaning that. Not been in a hurry. Um, and you, you, you learn along the way for sure. Yeah. Well, so Bruce, I know some homebrewers today that are pretty successful in the the batches that they put together, and they share it with everybody. But they've never taken that next step, which you have you got to the point where you said, Hey, I think I can do this on a larger scale. And I'm curious, 
you know, what was that point for you where, you know, did you just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I think I'm going to pursue this um, more aggressively and, and take a retail approach to it? Well, a lot of it is, is I would attribute to timing. Um, right after my wife and I got married and I was working at Tinker, uh, I wanted to, you know, pursue a little bit more education. And I thought getting an MBA would be great for my FA or my federal career. Um, check another box, be able to move up the, the, to a management position level, but the, with a business degree or a master's degree. So I, we had that early on. We probably had that and we graduated from Oklahoma city university's, uh, minders school of business MBA program back in 92 as well. So I always had, you know, I, I really enjoyed that experience uh, and getting exposed to a business education as well as my technical education. So that was always in the back of my mind on uh, a lot of my engineering decisions were, were more non-technical because there's other financial, there's other many other aspects to a lot more technical questions. So when I had that in the back, my back pocket, it gave me a little sense of, hey, you know, one one day I'll be able to, I will be in charge, and I will be able to make my own decisions. And when that day comes, I'll have a little bit uh, broader perspective than just the technical or just the business. I'll have a good mixture of both, and I could hopefully take advantage of that. So, in Oklahoma, um, I, a lot of my friends are are a lot of beer folks. Back in the early um, 2000s, um, I had a couple of my friends, you know, they started um, Coop Ale Works. And okay. um, yeah. a lot of the, the folks in the home brewing community are like, you know, there were a handful of very, very, very good home brewers. You, they were, you know, we would encourage, you know, hey, you know, this, you might want to, you might want to get in this business. This is, this is something that you're good at. You need to, you need to share this and, and get paid for it or share it and make it available. And it was for a long time um, not really feasible. Um, the capitalization for that kind of business is enormous. You know, I still had a, a youngish family. Uh, the timing was not right. And the, the legal environment it was still always prohibitive. So in then, you know, fast forward, 10, 15 years, okay, my kids are getting ready to be um, in in and out of college. I'm totally vested in my um, federal career. The legislative environment in Oklahoma was changing drastically. The turnover in the legislature has been huge over the last five years, much more um, progressive and, and alcohol-friendly instead of um, being in the Bible Belt where every anything and all things alcohol are evil. Uh, so those things were changing. It was a, a lot of timing came together for me and my wife to say, Hey, you know, if you're, she'd been saying no, 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 no for 15 years. And then I kind of brought it up. I'm like, you know, this might be something that's, you know, going to take off in Oklahoma. It's taken off everywhere else in the country and Oklahoma's behind. If we're ever going to do it, this is really the time to do it. So, um, five, six years ago, we put together the 30-page business plan uh, and pretty much went for it. Yeah, and the, and the rest the rest is history, as they say, right? 
Sure, sure. And <laughs> the rest is history and a lot of bumps and bruises and uh, <laughs> sleepless sleepless nights and racing minds and second guesses and, oh, craps I shouldn't haves and <laughs> all that along with it. Well, what so for you, when you guys then launched Twisted Spike and, you know, you've got your location, as you were starting to go down this path, Bruce, was this, you know, we talk a lot about freedom in business, right? The thing about an entrepreneur is um, you ha- you have alleged freedom as a business owner. And, and I say that word because the truth is it's a lot of work and, and you're taking a lot of responsibility, um, not only for yourself, but your employees and your, your customers and all the other things that come with it. But, you know, did you see this? Did you have a vision for what Twisted Spike could become for you personally, as well as, as a business opportunity? I really approached it as a way to help Oklahoma City, help help you know help promote and lift up and provide uh, an opportunity to experience things in Oklahoma that everybody else had in the country. Um, as far as beer goes, I'm excited. I just have such a passion for beer, and it's it's so neat to me to be able to uh, manufacture something and be able to share it. And that's really my biggest goals. I never got in it to be the low cost provider. Um, I'm not upset that my beer is not at Costco. The, the, I really set out more to prove and to show people that you can make world-class beer in Oklahoma. That was, that's really always been my driver. Okay. And and I, I would have to say that you've done a good job of that. <laughs> well, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Everybody needs a good uh, support network. <laughs> yes. No, you've, you've done great. And um, I, I constantly see it at the store, which is more convenient. I, I don't always get downtown as often as I'd like, but this brings, I'm going to bring this back around because the retail part for you is relatively new or at least, I haven't seen it until the last year or so for you, but I'm going to ask you a question because we talked a little bit about this is really art and um, you get to be artistic in the way that you create the brews. Once you become a brew master and you, you, you understand the ins and outs of it. But I want to talk about the cans for a second, because one thing I got thinking about in preparation for our conversation today was, you know, when we see, the traditional national brands out there for beer, you know, it's a, it's a pretty basic um, can of beer, bottle of beer that they'll put out there. But I'm noticing uh, with the local brewers like yourself, there are some unbelievably artistic cans that are designed. And I'm just curious, do you guys, um, do you go out and do that individually um, with your own artists? Is there somebody in town that's doing that work? And, and what's behind that? Because quite frankly, they're really, really some neat marketing that you you put in those cans. Mm-hmm. It's all about branding, man. You got it. Yeah. It's all about the branding. It, you know, it's business. It's, it's being noticeable on the shelf. Um, my wife in particular, her, when we went through the 
the MBA program, she really is concentrated a lot on marketing. Um, and branding is a big part of that. We knew really up front that we really wanted to, you know, to stand not only with the beer to stand out uh, on its own, but you can't get somebody to get to the beer without getting their attention first. You got to get their attention with colors, with design, with names. Um, the craft beer industry is, is famous now for uh, naming beers. It, there's so many different uh, beers out there and so many different names. It's really, really difficult to uh, be unique and have something that's not already trademarked. Um, so when we started early on uh, in the branding process, you know, we got with a local artist um, and we developed our logo first um, as the first portion of it. And my um, requirements for our main, our primary logo was going to be that it had to be cool enough that I wanted to get a tattoo of it. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so if it was if it wasn't cool enough, it's not going on. I still, you know, I, I I think about every anniversary party that that we come across. Like, you know, I said that at the first anniversary, I was going to get that tattoo. I still haven't done it. I don't have a single tattoo on my body, but uh, one of these days it's going to happen. It's got it's got to happen. That was my, my you know, if I if I really if I really if I'm really all in, by gosh, I should be able to put that on on a tattoo on my on my arm or something. Um, and once we got that. Uh, primary logo done, and we were really pleased with the local artist, um, Isaiah McKee is his name. Um, we then set out to make the designs for all the, the first 12 uh, beers that we brought out and the art for those cans. So we had, uh, I had a handful of names from that I had named these beers as a home brewer. Um, some of them made the cut, some of them didn't make the cut. And then um, Donna and Isaiah and myself um, threw together the con, you know, get the concept of of the beer. Um, the artist was very much in. Okay, well, what you know, he, the, the way he worked, um, he needed to have some kind of story involved. What's the story behind this beer? Where did it come from? What's the style? Why do you, why are you making it? And from the story behind each one of these homebrew beers over the last twenty five years. He was able to, as well as Donna, provide you know the the framework for what the can design should be, and from that they refined it and refined it and refined it, and um, that's how we got all of those really really super neat designs on all of our cans and all of our labels. Well, they're uh, they're very intriguing. I love um, it, it's almost like go, going through a bookstore when you when you see all the craft beer cans lined up um, in the store. You know, you talked about marketing, so th there's branding and marketing in that, and then contrast that with the brewery, because like I said, I've been there several times, and it's a great experience as well, um, which is part of your brand. It's part of, the, part of the marketing that you do. Tell us a little bit about um, the brewery and why you picked the location that you did um, and some of the things that you're doing there. Um, for maybe some of our audience that hasn't had the pleasure of of, of going down and checking it out. Mm -hmm. Well, we really the the brewery as an entity, uh, I always thought needed to you know, solve some kind of problem. Um, what you know, any any time you're bringing a product to market, 
what is better about your product or what problem is it solving? Are you solving an access problem? Are you solving a quality problem? Are you solving, you know, uh, a location or an accessibility problem? What, 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 how are you, when you bring this product to market, how are you going to do either, do it either better than somebody else or quality or accessibility? What, what problem are you solving? Um, the problem that Oklahoma City downtown had was I've seen millions, well, not millions, several hundred uh, tap rooms and small breweries in large towns, small towns, big cities, downtowns, um, for where Oklahoma City was starting to grow and starting to be get a little bit more urbanized again. Well, what's not downtown? Why aren't people going town? What what would draw somebody downtown? Every other city has microbreweries downtown. So like, wow, we, you know, if we, if we want to do this, the best place for us to be would be in a downtown area where nobody else is. And well, we would solve the problem of the people that are, that have taken the chance and moved back downtown area and have some condos down there. Give them, give them something to do, you know, give, give them that microbrewery experience that, that I've enjoyed all over the country for years. So we really wanted to find some place in the downtown area. But at the same time, it had to be affordable. Sure, you could uh, you know, go into a developed area already like Bricktown and you're, you know, there's not a giant margin of profit in local craft beer. So you're kind of limited on what you can pay in rent. So we started in the center of town and then moved the, as our radius grew and grew, our rent was going to uh, lower and lower. So five years ago, 10th Street had has not been that very much developed, and we were able to find our location. And at that time, it was just a uh, it was leasing as a unconditioned warehouse um, for a price that we could afford. So right. uh, we jumped on it. You know, we had you know it had great bones. It had a lot of the some the interior character that we were that we thought would be good. It was going it was going to be big enough. Um, there were, uh, you know, we knew that one day, and at that time, the laws were still that breweries could not um, have a tap room. Um, we were prepared to sell the beer to a distributor, only to buy it back and only sell our beer in our uh, in our tap room. And right before, until we so we find a location, 14 months worth of build out, um, two months before we were scheduled really to open one of the laws went into effect that breweries could have and operate their own tap rooms so our our wishful predictions and hopes uh, uh came true in that regard where we didn't have to operate two llcs and we were able to uh, serve our beer in our tap room and we were actually the first brewery in oklahoma that had a designed in tap room. So when that law did change, we were perfectly positioned to take advantage of all of that, that revenue stream that you get that you that was not available before. Sometimes it's all about timing in that. It's exactly, I mean, yeah, it absolutely is timing. Um, you know, you'd be able to, you know, nobody, if I had a crystal ball, uh, I, I probably wouldn't be in the beer business, but, you know, you you got you'd be able to spot trends, be able to you know see where things are going. You know, there's plenty of there was plenty of data from the Brewers Association on 
uh, the growth in uh, craft beer and the what it was, you know, the segment that was taking a giant chunk out of Anheuser-Busch and, and Miller Coors. So, you know, from that perspective, that was there was some predictability, but you never never know what's going to happen on your street when when construction is going to happen. You know, and, you know, we had a big issue with uh, when they were putting the quiet zone in downtown Oklahoma City, where they were they were replacing basically all of the crossings and the nightmare of traffic um, that all of those uh, railroad crossing construction terms made for various things. And then you've got the trolley construction going on in the downtown area where that construction had intersections closed and blocks and blocks closed. So, you know, that, that kind of thing is always a, a huge factor. We, my wife's, you know, my father-in-law um, started a uh, club in the eighties uh, in Lomans Plaza North uh, you know, on Portland and Memorial. He was going great guns for two years and was, everything was high on the hog. And then the turnpike happened. And that construction shut him down and he lost everything. Oh. So, you know, you know, having, and my mother and her and my stepfather started a, a uh, European restaurant on the West side of Edmond. Um, well, well before the time. And, you know, they had their, they were, you know, almost in my same position, you know, right now, 20 years ago um, and watched, you know, that business start and fail over, you know, two or three years. So there's been, you know, there are a lot of uh, a lot of life experiences that we've had watching our parents and 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 seeing, you know, that happen, and you know, try to learn from it and try to uh, not make um, some of those same errors, and using all you know all the experiences you have uh, as that you've gotten in the you know in your adult life and put them to practice. You don't want to repeat other people's mistakes. Well, we, yeah, we tried to avoid that. And we talked about adapting and pivoting and, and you need to always assess, right? But I'm curious, uh, Bruce, as you look out, I mean, you've been through a lot of this overnight success that we joke about, but you put in the work, um, you're starting to see some real fruits from that. What has you most excited as you look out into the future for Twisted Spike? I really, uh, well, as soon as I, I can actually retire from my uh, federal position in March. So having having two jobs is very difficult and exhausting. Uh, my my mental uh, energy uh, to do both is is a critical critical point usually. So I'm most excited about being able to, and that was part of the plan as well. So we started four years ago. I'm still working. If this if this doesn't happen, if it's not going in the right direction, if we don't see uh, greener pastures coming, then it was a great experience, a good ex- you know good good time. We made a lot of people happy, and we're done. <laughs> but in this case, uh, I see that we are. Um, achieving many of the goals that we set for ourselves. Um, it, I think that we will achieve even more if we, if I'm able to spend all my time um, on it instead of um, minus 40 hours at my, my regular job. And I kind of 
kid people that uh, I say, well, you know, look at Twisted Spike now. This is what I can achieve part time. Yeah. And, and once I, but once I would retire and go at it 100%, I won't have any excuses for any other underachievement. So it's a double-edged sword there. <laughs> you, you're going to be responsible for all of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, even I, I, you know, part of our capitalization, you know, I still am a 51% owner in the company. I have a lot, I have several partners that have um, allowed us to be able to put this uh, project together. What, the fun about that is uh, 51% owner, 100% responsible. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, okay. Well, we're coming, we're coming towards the end of our show, and I really appreciate you being on. But um, before we share kind of how people can get in touch with you or, or learn more about this, I'm curious, you know, I told you before the show, we talked about, you know, our desire to encourage entrepreneurs um, and focus on second half entrepreneurs and letting them know that, you know, there are people out doing that. And I think that's really one of the things that was important to me today, Bruce, is to, is to show you as, as that person that, you know, had, had a hobby or something they were passionate about, turned it into a business. What advice would you share with somebody? And let's, let's say all entrepreneurs will open it up. Uh, for them if they were starting a business today, but also, you know, that second half entrepreneur that's thinking about something similar to the path you've been down, what what advice would you share with them? Well, you really have to have a really good support network, um, whether it's a, a family or a wife or a brother, sister, cheerleader, you know, because it's hard. It's There's nothing easy about entrepreneurship. Um, to find all of the positive reinforcement from wherever you can get it. Um, I, the, after the first year and a half, two years of doing this, I was struggling with, am I doing the right thing? What am I not doing? Where am I, where, how can I make this better? How can I get, you know, achieve a little bit better in my mind success? You know, I was looking for a coach. I did find through the local score contacted them and um, found a uh, business person a retired business person that was willing to come and check out what I had got going on and um, bounce a few ideas and say so, you know it ended up being you know it's another service area a service industry person you know either a, a small fast food um, franchisee uh, retiring, you know, somebody that was, you know, been in the service industry, you know, because craft beer is a service industry to be able to um, find somebody that's like, you know, you're doing okay. You're doing, you're doing fine. You're, you know, just <laughs> get some positive reinforcement. And if, if, if you are making some um, big areas of, of non-success, what, what, is what why what are the reasons and it's a lot of stuff you, you can't take a step back and see the forest or the trees but somebody from the outside can say hey you know nobody's coming into your establishment because your bathrooms aren't clean you know something like that that you know that you don't realize or or um, point out things that are obvious to them that are not that obviously not obvious to you so find that find that coach find that support network yeah. and you know donna has been i would be nowhere with in this in the brewery without all of her support 
Um, so from that perspective, you know, you really got to get a good support network going. Fabulous advice that, um, you know, like you said, it's, it's not only somebody to, um, help prop you up a little bit, right? Cause there are ups and downs to being an entrepreneur and having people that can go through that with you, uh, is vital because it, it gets lonely once in a while. But, um, I love your point about the bathrooms, um, pet peeve of my wife's, by the way, but somebody they'll be honest with you, right? And, and not just gloss it over. So fabulous. Bruce, how do we get in touch with you? How do we learn more about Twisted Spike for our audience here that has not experienced uh, your brewery or one of your fabulous beers to this point? Well, one of them best things about social media and social media marketing is it's cheap. And my wife is an excellent um, provider of those kinds of uh, materials. We have our, our social media presence is, is pretty significant. So whether it's a Facebook or a um, Twitter or an Instagram, we've got all of those social media tools at our disposal. So it's not hard to find twistedspike.com on the website and then um, at Twisted Spike Brewery, Brewing at Twisted Spike Brewing, either on Instagram or on Facebook. Um, we are constantly promoting and publishing uh, events that we're doing inside the brewery as well as um, fundraising events that we're attending all over the state. And we're we try to be very, very visible. Um, Bruce at twistedspike.com doesn't get much simpler than that. And um, not hard to find. No, not at all. And I want to encourage our audience, um, get online, check their hours. Uh, it's not uncommon to see both Bruce and Donna down there. Um, they're always got a big smile and a handshake, make you feel welcome. But it's, it's a great experience. And Bruce, appreciate you being on the show today. This has been very special for me as a beer lover. And um, your story is important. And I appreciate you taking the time to, to share that with us today. You're very welcome. Guys, you've been listening to the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. This is Rick Hadrapa. I really appreciate you tuning in. And until next time, keep moving the needle. The Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Epic Business Advisory, where we help entrepreneurs escape the owner's trap, build businesses that can succeed without you, allowing you the opportunity to realize more freedom, think bigger, and pursue next-level goals. Download our freedom formula at epicsbiz.com formula. And remember, we're only getting started.